don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 60. And today we are talking about uh, The Conjuring 1 and The Conjuring 2 which are just uh, two of many entries in the, the Conjuring universe, as I learned uh, it's called. Didn't know that was a thing. Um, so this is the day after Halloween, so this is a good way to wrap up spooky season and get straight into decorative gourd season, I think, um, <laughs> by talking about uh, one of the most successful directors on Earth right now, James Wan, and his, his over... Yeah, we were just adding up there or looking at the profits and it's uh, uh, he's making a ton of money for whoever, you know, produces these movies. Um, so he, he did uh, maybe one of his best movies or coolest movies, I think, is the original Saul. Yeah, it's like not bad. And I, I think they shot that for like nothing. And in like two weeks, uh, but he made saw and then uh, he did one called dead silence i think it was about like, puppets or something yeah. and insidious insidious 2 the conjuring the conjuring 2 he did a uh, fast and furious movie furious 7 and then aquaman and yeah he's just he's a, a, an extremely high grossing film director yeah, and it's. It, I was telling you a little factoid I got from Wikipedia is that both Furious Seven and Aquaman both made over a billion dollars. So he's one mm-hmm. of the only directors to ever, you know, direct two movies that made over a billion dollars. And that's it's kind of hilarious to me because you know Furious Seven or Fast Seven, whatever it's called, like that makes sense, I guess, because that's a big franchise that people really love and. You know, everybody loves to go see the new one and see The Rock punch a tank or whatever. Uh, but with Aquaman, I don't know anyone who has seen that or wanted to see that. And from what I understand, it wasn't very good. Even like fans of the character or whatever weren't super into right. it. So it's but really the reason the reason you much. heard so much about that is because everyone saw it and then bitched about it. But as long as they paid for that first ticket. Yeah, and you know, overseas uh, markets um, being what they are now, you can rack up a lot of dollars on. Well, film. and I was just I was just thinking that uh, horror and like action adventure, like Marvel stuff, is so internationally viable because it is primarily. I mean, I mean, film is primarily visual, but those genres are even more so, like especially visually driven where there's not a lot lost in translation with a, you know, the horror in the conjuring is not in, uh, is not dependent on the dialogue or, or, you know, anything <laughs> Definitely like that. Not. Uh, the, the same as the enjoyment of a Marvel film is primarily through like visual spectacle. Uh, yeah. So these are just crushing it in America and everywhere else. Yeah. And I would say like, it, it's gonna, it's gonna come out pretty quickly that I'm not a fan of these movies, but it, like you're saying it, as horror film is a thing that exists primarily visually and, you know, auditorily, I would say like audio plays a big deal in both of the movies. Absolutely. Um, but, but not necessarily like dialogue. Yeah. So yeah. horror is definitely more of like a, like a sensual experience. Right. Um, yeah. so with that, I think the first conjuring film, 
six seeds like it's it's pretty it's not you know breaking the mold or anything but it's it's a functioning like spooky atmospheric kind of scary movie the second one to me was just kind of goofy and like not not really scary at all it's like uh, it, it couldn't really pick a a, a particular narrative it it, it uh I was reading the the budget was twice uh what the first one was and so they had all this money to do all these things but it, it just sort of feels like a a sort of conglomeration of of uh kind of gimmicks as opposed to a cohesive narrative the the first one like you're saying kind of it is a cohesive narrative it's not groundbreaking or earth-shattering but when this came out in 2013 and i saw it uh it scared me you watch it in the dark you know it's there's some scary moments the things jump out at the right time the the sounds you know catch you off guard and it's uh it's cool yeah and like the first uh we've talked about the first insidious movie um kind of randomly on different episodes but that movie like scared the shit out of me it's it's, yeah even though i saw this i saw the second one in the theater and that is like maybe the most scared i've ever been in a movie theater except for uh hereditary yeah and talking in I, i this is kind of i guess we're just talking about the movies now but like aesthetically i was thinking about these kinds of movies this kind of like I guess Juan-esque horror movie um, and how different it is from a movie like Hereditary. And, and I forget the name of that filmmaker. I can never remember. Ari, Ari Aster. Yeah. And his whole like aesthetic within his films and something that makes Hereditary so scary in a different way. It's more just like unsettling and, and just makes you feel uncomfortable. And I, I was thinking about why that is. And I think in Hereditary, not all of it, but a lot of the really like fucked up things that happen are happening kind of in broad daylight and they're, they're not wrapped up in this air of supernatural. They're just things that are happening that people are experiencing. And it almost makes them kind of like, it makes evil kind of mundane in a weird kind of way or like material. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And he takes it, takes it even further in Midsommar with, uh, uh, you know, the whole daylight thing. It's almost like uh, what we said about outbreak, how there's like, like every scene in outbreak takes place at 11 a.m. on a cloudless day. <laughs> yeah. uh, Midsommar is like that, but very consciously. It's like trying to make a scary movie in the daytime and succeeds. Yeah. Um, Whereas The Conjuring, both of them, it's very much like that classic bad things only happen in the middle of the night sort of thing. Yeah. But but uh, speaking of Insidious, some of the scariest scenes in Insidious are in the daytime. Yeah, that's when true. Uh, she starts when uh, when that little kid you know starts playing the record, uh, uh, the Tiny Tim record, like tiptoe through. You know, uh, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. God damn, that scared the shit out of me. And anyway, those- uh, but yeah, these these are more more traditional, and there's a lot of you know nighttime scaries and or or if it's not at night it's like in the basement where there's no light and and then the day light is sort of the relief um and and it's just it's just sort of uh tropey you know Mm -hmm. but uh like i said it's this movie's not trying to reinvent anything almost every james wan at least at least the insidious movies and the conjurings are like the exact same 
narrative structure as the movie Poltergeist. <laughs> yes. Like it, it, it almost, I, I think there's a shout out in the conjuring two with the chair. He's like, give me the chair from the kitchen. And it like slides across, which is like, you know, a big moment in poltergeist. Or like the TV uh, in the first one, in the first conjuring, there's yeah. a scene where the TV is all staticky, I guess in the second one too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so he, he's not trying to reinvent the horror movie, no. but he does. These movies are extremely technically competent. You know, he is, it doesn't feel, you know, so much of horror is campy and sort of, uh, kind of independent, uh, spirit directors, you know, it's, there's like a homemade quality to it. This is not like that. This is very, uh, Hollywood produced level. Yeah, for sure. Although there are the, and again, the second one, just, I feel like, like we're saying, went astray of, of that formula, maybe a little bit, but there was a scene and this isn't very important, but there's a scene in the second one that struck me as kind of like uncharacteristic of, of how the films are shot. And it's when, uh, Patrick Wilson Ed Ed, uh, Ed Warren, um, is trying to get into the house and he like breaks the window and he sticks his head in and the ghost or demon or whatever, like throws the couch up against it and like knocks him out of the window. Yeah. And there's like, you, you get, it, it almost looks like a shot from evil dead or army of darkness where it's like this, this kind of like close up on his face in the window and he's like, Whoa. And then the couch is like coming super fast and it's almost like yeah. comedic in how it happens. And I was like, that was a little right. weird. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, there are a few little moments. Uh, I mean, uh, obviously that's not, not meant to be comic relief because it's an action sequence, but there are moments that are trying to be comic relief in these movies that are not very good. I, uh, I want to get your opinion about one because I, there's a scene that to me was really funny, but I, I don't think is meant to be, I think it's meant to be like a very somber moment. And it's okay. in, in the second one, they're sitting in the bar or the whatever, wherever the Warrens and the, the British uh, paranormal guy. And they're kind of talking and uh the, is this where she says which like what's worse demons yes. or people who prey on them yeah and, she and says, Lorraine demons. Goes, the demons are worse the demons are worse i think that's meant to be like a serious somber statement but to me it was very funny where <laughs> she's just yeah. like the demons are worse <laughs> because because it also uh she thinks she's being like very direct uh but it if you like pay attention to what the woman who asked the question uh says Lorraine's statement uh, implicitly kind of uh, acknowledges that the other category of person does exist and that she might be that category, the people that prey upon innocent victims. Yeah. So by, so by her saying the demons are worse, she's acknowledging that the other category is like a thing. And like, so we're, you know, we think about it for five seconds. We're like, Oh, in a way, she just like admitted that she's like a snake oil peddler. And the way that the movies handle, or actually the way they don't handle criticisms of the Warrens is, is pretty great. Because in the second one, you have the scene where they're on the TV show. And I thought when it when that scene started, I was like, okay, this is when they're going to try to get into some of these counter argument sort of things. And instead they just don't they, they they fall back on well you weren't there you don't have the experience you don't have faith that it's happening therefore that's why you think it's it does it's not true and yeah, it, it was, even gets a point it where was like so weird uh i watched that scene this morning 
And it some it uh, really reminded me. So when when he they're on the TV show, and then you you cut to uh, uh, Ed and Lorraine talking about how they're sort of being attacked on TV by the non-believers, the academics. It is very much like the scene in The Master after the guy at the party confronts Philip Seymour Hoffman and tries to get him to like have a rational conversation. And then it cuts to uh, Amy Adams uh, as the master's wife, like explaining how attacked they are by, by like the status quo, yeah. um, which, which I think is an interesting connection because in the master, it's clear he's peddling the snake oil, but in, in the conjuring, we're supposed to be on Ed and Lorraine's side. Yeah. And it's very Trumpian of like, they're treating me very unfairly, like that kind of thing that he says all the time. Um, yeah. but it, and it was really, again, I think it's meant to be, I think it's meant to be comic relief, but in not in the way it's, it's funny to me for a reason, uh, for a different reason. What the fuck am I trying to say? It's, it's funny to me in a different way than it is to James Wan, I think who's filming it, yeah. uh, in, yeah. in which, you know, Ed gets mad and like threatens to kick the guy's ass basically. And <laughs> yeah. I think we're supposed Tough to be like, ghosts. Yeah, I think we're supposed to be like, oh, Ed's fiery and willing to defend the honor of his work with his wife. But to me, it's like, really, dude, that's your only comeback? Is it like you want to take it outside? Yeah. Yeah, I, like I like I text you, our, our uh, friend Capron, uh, I remember, told me that he saw these, he saw the real Warrens give a, give a talk, I think maybe when he was an undergrad, and he said it was just like, no no doubt about it these people are full of shit which i mean of course they're full of shit but he he was saying they were doing a very bad job of hiding it yeah and that's the thing it's like they i don't know they they never seem to they don't even try right it's i feel like they they so believe their own hype and their own bullshit that they're just like oh this happened and if you don't believe it then you're wrong and they just keep rolling um, and they're presented in the film as people that should be sort of revered and believed and, and all this. And, and this is the, the whole thing about this whole universe that is fascinating to me. And we'll, we'll end up talking more about this. I'm sure is that these movies take place in a world in which there are people that know without a shadow of a doubt that God and the devil exist, that there is an afterlife, all of it's true. Right. And yeah. what do they use it for? Not much. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's almost like it's a secret. Yeah. Instead, the Warrens are just like cops for the church, and and that's what they do. But it's like they're you, like you free, know that God freelance. is real. They're like private detectives. Yeah, it's like they're you. Uh, it's like you have proof that like this thing that means so much to billions of people is the truth, and you use it to go lecture at universities and like sell books. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh I think that's probably sort of a useful entry. They're sort of, you know, believing their own bullshit to kind of the reason we uh, you know, the reason I suggested these movies for a podcast like this is that, you know, horror the the horror genre is sort of this container for cultural fears. Uh, you know, we've talked about movies as cultural dreams. So you know, individual dreams are primarily, uh, you know, either wish fulfillments or, um, 
sort of uh, embodiments or, or narratives of anxieties and fears. Um, and so on the cultural level, you see wish fulfillment play out in like the hero narrative. So there's a movie, think of any Marvel movie, you know, where the, the audience member is invited to identify with the moral, strong, uh, always prevailing hero or heroine. And, uh, so we sort of, we get to, we get to have our wish to be a hero fulfilled or our, our wish that good, good trumps evil and morality is the primary, uh, sort of, uh, influencer of our lives, motivator in our lives. And, and if you do right, good things happen. Uh, and then on the other side of that, thinking about movies as cultural dreams, uh, horror movies are kind of embodiments of cultural anxieties and fears. Um, and we were, you know, uh, you know, we were texting yesterday about kind of how, uh, kind of how this comes through in the conjuring and how I think you said, uh, or maybe we both said there's this weird sort of defense mechanism in coding uh, cultural fears and anxieties uh, uh, like putting them in metaphors mm -hmm. and then into movies and calling the movie just like strictly entertainment um, and I was making the connection saying it's almost like when you have a scary but confusing dream as long as the scary confusing dream remains confusing you never really have to wrestle with the contents the the true contents um I guess you'd call that the latent content in Freudian terms, as opposed to the manifest content. Um, and so there's, there's this, uh, safety in, in the metaphor, in the coding. And you can see that on a few different levels. Like we were just talking about the Warrens buying their own bullshit is a way for them to not have to really grapple with anything. Um, uh, when you can reduce the, the so-called evil of the world, uh, which I think is a useful sort of term and, and a, not a not an empty not an empty term. The word evil, um, when you can reduce though the the bad things in the world to a spiritual war between like heaven and hell and angels and demons, it's really just kind of an exoneration of your of your own life as opposed to any meaningful philosophy. Um, so that's one level I think you can see that working on them, like the real people, the Warrens buying their own bullshit, but also then, as, you can apply that same logic to horror movies themselves as, you know, uh, the conjuring seems to be mostly about depression. There's all, all sorts of signifiers that, uh, or symbols, images of depression, the mother's possession sort of functions as a, as a depression at the hands of the, uh, too busy or absent father and the overwhelming responsibility of raising like four children. Um, but there's, the, there's something, uh, uh, comforting. It's like, we, it's like, we, we know we need to talk about this issue of depression. Uh, and, and in the second one, it's mostly like abuse. Um, 
But if we do it in these coded ways, it's like like a dream. You sort of you get you get enough of the latent content to like stop having the nightmare, but you never really have to um, wrestle with the with the hard thoughts and feelings. Yeah, and you know I'm glad you you brought up the uh, the the sort of mother father family angle because just like these films are extremely kind of weirdly conservative from like a religious standpoint, they're they're really conservative in how they view family. And I noticed this weird thing that happened in both films where there are scenes in which Ed Warren becomes a stand in father. Yes. Like he fixes, fixes the car, fixes the the Chevy. Uh, He fixes the sink in the second one. He's like playing the guitar. Remember the, the in the second one they say the the father who's who left uh, took the records with him took the music uh, yeah and then and then Ed brings the records and then and then plays the guitar yeah and he literally becomes it's more so in the second one but in the first one as well where if there is an absent or a an inadequate father he's there to sort of step in and it's sort of implying like. This will help. This also helps defeat the evil if you have a strong nuclear family structure. Um, and well, yeah, yeah. They say uh, spirits prey on like uh, the vulnerable people who are sort of emotionally distressed. It's like yeah. so because you got yes, divorced. So, so does depression. <laughs> yeah, it's like because because your uh, family kind of dissolved a little bit and you got divorced, you're being haunted, which is you know fucked up for a number of reasons. But it's also a clue that the the true substance of the hauntings is emotional. Uh, Yeah. yeah. And and the real question you have to ask yourself watching these movies is how conscious is this? Yes. Uh, You know, how how consciously do these movies seek to represent real anxieties and fears as a as a sort of spectacle? Yes. But also as like a cultural catharsis for meaningful anxieties and given the fact that the the screenwriters are these like uh kind of like fundamentalist christians it sounds like um i can't really i don't really hold out a lot of hope that this is like a, a conscious sort of thing more likely it's just like uh they're just kind of working with basic archetypes and there happens to be overlap with with these fears yeah it seems like when you get to the question of how how much is the film about or the how much are these films about um these deeper issues it's it's kind of like hard because it seems like the movies are sort of trying to have it both ways but they're also mostly leaning toward like the literal reading of this is a demon sent from hell and we have to combat it. And right. It and you, can, you can see that. I, I'm glad you mentioned that because I had this thought and I, I would have forgotten it. Um, you can see that that is true, that, that you are primarily meant to experience these as a literal sort of thing because of all the shit that Ed says about God, but also the movie uses these sort of, uh, I guess they're, they're horror movie tropes by now where it like freeze frames and then the like dialogue or, uh, uh, text scrolls up and like gives factual information. I want to say that, that 
Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, remake from the the early aughts uh, did a similar sort of thing, and it's it's using sort of images from like news media, almost like a a, a Dos Passos thing, you know, where he uses like uh, newspaper headlines mm-hmm. in his uh, USA trilogy. Uh, to but it's to establish this sort of objectivity and credibility that we associate with like factual news reporting or i guess used to associate with news reporting um so i I think that's a pretty good argument for these movies kind of taking themselves very literally or inviting us to experience them literally yeah yeah i i don't know it's just it the just i don't know the the way in which the they try to sort of lean so much into the the reality of of the you know scary things happening made it a little bit confusing and also that's a big part of what made the second one kind of fall apart to me um which is that the the warren spend the whole first like two-thirds of the film experiencing deeply supernatural scary shit and then they see the one video of the girl trashing the kitchen they're like oh it's fake right it didn't make any sense which was you know and and, you know pointing out these plot holes is not like the most productive way to look at the movies but Mm -hmm. it's just it was strange to see how you know that this is meant to challenge their faith and then god sort of kicks down the door and makes the tapes cross into a cross (laughs) and and ed's like oh shit well i um i think we were just talking about hereditary and I think another element of what makes hereditary so scary is that unlike uh, the conjuring movies, hereditary is very conscious of both levels that it's working on. There's like this literal sort of demon demonology, uh, you know, uh, haunting or possession or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then there's there's this sort of uh, implication of like uh, uh, genetic uh, inheritance of mental illness. Yeah. And yet, the because the movie's conscious, it sort of it lets it lets you know that it knows about that reading. And, and, and sort of incorporates it, um, you know, because mental illness is like part of the plot, you know, uh, Tony Collette's brother, I think it is in that movie is, is, uh, you know, kills himself because he's, he's schizophrenic and he says someone's, you know, the grand, the mom was trying to put people in his head or, or something, um, Anyway, all that to say, I, I think Hereditary succeeds because it is very much aware of both levels it's working on and then goes so far as to like integrate what you think is this sort of like wink to to this kind of intellectual reading. And it, but it incorporates it into the plot um, and it and it makes it makes the viewers experience all the more uh, like the literal reading of it. Uh, accounts for that 
metaphorical reading of it. And it's just like way scarier that way. Yeah. Um, whereas with these, it's not really, it, there's no like nudge wink. Hey, we're, we're on the same page here. It's more like full steam ahead with combating the devil literally. Yeah. And it's, it's the, it's, you know, like pornography. It's just like, uh, foreplay and then the jump scares and then more foreplay and then another jump scare. And just, it's, it's like an action movie, you know, it's like, you're just sort of counting down the minutes with the dialogue to like, okay, when, when's the scary shit going to happen? When's the action going to happen? Yeah. It made me think weirdly enough of like Indiana Jones where in each movie there's like an artifact that they're trying to get. And then at the end they get it and they put it in their, their, uh, museum. Yeah. I could just see Ed grabbing that like little, uh, wind up clown box. It belongs in a museum. So yeah, it's, uh, it gave me those, those kinds of, of vibes as well. Um, I th- it, Jincy, uh, noticed uh, how, you know, just how strange it was, how big a role, uh, children's toys play in these oh, movies. Yeah. You know, you have the, the Annabelle doll, uh, in the first one, you see it at the end of the second one too, but then you have that wind up doll thing, uh, with the mirror on it. And then in the second one, you have the crooked man thing. Um, and we were sort of speculating about that and saying, you know, there's, like I said, there's sort of this, this, uh, metaphorical level where this is, uh, this is about depression or it's about abuse uh, or it's at the very least about an absent father uh, and the need for the the nuclear family. Um, and so Ed and Lorraine in that reading kind of function as therapists. There's even that scene in the second one where Lorraine is sitting at the swing set with the little girl and it's, it's just like a therapy session. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, in that reading, they sort of function as as therapists and these uh the the focus on the children's toys i think has something to do with that you know most of therapy uh, i think is is like a, a digging into your childhood and wrestling with you know all the scary sort of things uh that kind of formed who you are uh, and so the toys maybe are these sort of like embodiments of that. This and that's why they they look so scary. You know, the toys aren't like bright and clean. They're always like old and dirty and just totally creepy. Um, but it, uh, that's that's the best I could do with like trying to come up with a, uh, a you know a, a meaning for the focus on toys as like an embodiment. Uh, you know an giving an object to the scariness of childhood that, that people are often dealing with in, uh, sort of unpacking their psychological history. Yeah. And it's also like a pretty common, like horror thing that these movies do a lot, which is they take common things and spookify them, like make them signifiers of something supernatural and nefarious. So thinking specific, specifically about, uh, I made a list of them on my phone as I was watching, waking up with a bruise that you can't explain. That's a pretty common mm-hmm. thing. Um, smelling weird things, clocks stopping at certain times, 
dogs acting weird, uh, kids having imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of things are all made into like, you know, signifiers of, of evil. Um, right. And there's also this idea across both movies and across like the entire or a lot of this conjuring universe, which is that uh, the wor- the most evil thing you can do is to target children. Right. And that's where it kind of it, it starts to get into like far right wing, like crazy QAnon territory where it's like the attacking children or targeting children is like the most evil thing that, that one can do next to targeting a dog or like hurting a pet. Right. Uh, those, <laughs> those two things are like weirdly put side by side. Um, but in all these movies, what's at stake? Well, the safety of a child. And that's like presented as the most precious thing. Right. Um, and if you look at the other films, like the Insidious movies and the uh, La Llorona or whatever it was, the they're, tr- they're kind of tryst into trying to get into a Latino market um, that didn't, that kind of underperformed compared to all the other movies. I saw a poster, I was reading like synopses of all these movies and on that poster, it literally says at the bottom, she wants your children. So all these movies are predicated on like a child is in trouble and will die and be taken to hell unless the Warrens can stop it. Yeah. I think you see another manifestation of that fear or whatever you want to call it, uh, in the, uh, sort of taken, like taken with Liam Neeson uh, and, and all those offshoots copycat movies, Mm -hmm. uh, like, middle-aged man's daughter goes missing middle-aged man has to kick ass to save her yeah except in those the bad guy isn't the devil it's like saudi oil shakes <laughs> those are, that's the bad guy like right. uh, you know emirati princes um but yeah so i don't know there's just that idea of of the children must be protected and that's sort of what all the movies or, and it's all, they always end up being about like mother daughter connections too, which is weird. Um, or just like a strange thing to, to repeat. And the father is either, like we said, absent or just seems to not have any power in what's happening. Um, which is an interesting kind of inversion, I guess. Well, it's, it's the Spielberg thing though. Um, it's, it's, it's like, it's like the Spielberg um, you know, I think Zizek talks about the, how like most of Spielberg's films are about, uh, re-legitimizing the patriarchy and how it's always about an absent father learning to be better. And, um, and this one is not quite that, uh, because it's not about, you know, the father figures don't come back or whatever. Um, are not redeemed, but it, it does diagnose the problem as absent father, all the like, uh, hauntings or, or neuroses of the families are the result of absent fathers. Yeah. Um, in kind of along similar lines as that, um, did you notice that the Warrens are, they only function through, well, I don't know how to say this. They, they always need or seek out the help of authoritative institutions. So either the church or in the first film, and I guess a little bit in the second film, the, the police, right? They always like 
are yeah. waiting on approval from the church, kind of like they're a rogue cop waiting for the chief to tell them that they can, that they mm-hmm. got the warrant or whatever. Um, yeah. And then, in, and then, you know, the cops as well, like in the first one, they have the cop who's like, doesn't believe until she, the mother bites his neck and then she, he's like, Oh, it's real. Um, <laughs> but it, it was just interesting. And I think I said earlier, it's just a note I made that I keep thinking about is that the, the Warrens are basically cops for the church. Um, and they even sort of carry themselves that way as well. Um, and that's why the big climax at the end of the first movie is Ed deciding that he has to do the, the exorcism himself without mm-hmm. the church's approval. And it's like, okay, who cares? Like what, why does that matter? Like, well, the- and, and that premise is so fucking stupid because yeah. it's like the idea that you have to like run something up the, the flagpole at the church. It's like, what, it it, it it sort of implies that like oh maybe maybe this uh, exorcism wouldn't happen if like the paperwork didn't get filed on time. It's like it's like your soul can only be saved if if the bureaucracy runs smoothly. If the Pope said it's okay. Yeah, it's like what is it's some in, sort in of the like, first yeah in the first movie the priest is like we we don't we can't really help these people because they don't go to church and the children aren't baptized. Yeah, it's it's so strange. Like it's it's underneath that is is this implicit idea that institutions have like uh, are these natural things that correspond directly to reality and even spiritual reality, uh, and so they should be invested in and and taken seriously, which is insane. Uh, you know, uh, I'm. Yeah, it pisses me off to think about. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is just predicated on the just kind of unyielding faith in and sort of bowing to the Catholic Church, Um, which is interesting because it's like God is in this universe is 100% real, but also the Catholic, the Roman Catholic interpretation is the is the one that's most correct. Yeah, yeah. like we were saying yesterday, there's the, the thing. I think the thing that really gets to me is that these movies are kind of regressive. Like I, I think horror movies are a good platform to like really explore uncomfortable issues. And but what you know, we we just sort of scratched the surface earlier talking about the literalism of these movies. It's like they have this platform. They even have the story to talk about depression and abuse and then they cop out and, and it's just like, you know, you should pray and you should like believe in God. And that is how you, you fix these problems. And it's, it's uh, it falls really flat because it goes through all this trouble to set up these metaphors. uh, And then, and then it, it just tells you to, to, take stock in these institutions. Uh, and it's, it's really, it's really about sort of re uh, sanctioning the status quo, re, re, you know, in, reminding you that the world as it is and the institutions we've created are right and good. And, and these sort of conservative ideologies are, are, you know, worth your time. Uh, if you, if you take it far enough. 
And that's what, you know, we, we sort of, we didn't talk about this, but I think we were just about to, if we'd have kept having that conversation, um, the limits, kind of the limits of metaphor and, and the sort of coding of anxieties, uh, in relation to like eco horror, mm-hmm. um, cause you, you text me like what, what's the best film about faith, uh, in the last 20 years. And of course my first thought was first reformed. Um, and, and we were thinking about literal like movies that are like literally about climate change versus movies like say mother that, um, codes it. In, in a way, uh, makes it, you know, puts it in symbols. And I, I had the thought the other day that making a movie, uh, about climate change, but in metaphors is like calling nine one one and then playing charades. Um, because it's like, clearly it's this, you know, life or death situation, but then you're like playing this sort of movie game with it um and you're coding the the substance of it to where is it is it really about the the message or is it about you know the entertainment of it you you just left in this gray area of like what what is this for and that's sort of what we talked about when we talked about mother is like who is this for um it's preaching to the choir um so I think you can apply that to these movies. Like who is, if you're going to have all these metaphors for like depression, uh, or, or the images of depression. And I guess I should be clear. I think, I think it's pretty clear that Lily Taylor's character, the mom, you know, sort of wakes up dead eyed one day in this movie and is all of a sudden lethargic. And then her, you see all these images, uh, that's like straight out of a, abilify commercial <laughs> and you know she's like sitting on the side of the bed staring off into space and then you remember like the the resolution she has to like basically think a happy thought that, yeah <laughs> that's the that the old wives tale of like the cure for depression just like think about happy things um but that's how her possession is essentially resolved she thinks happy thoughts and they have to name the demon. In both of these movies, the possessions are resolved when they can name the demon, which is basically diagnosis, right? When you when you know what the disease is called, then you can treat it. Um, so that's what I'm talking about when I say these movies are about depression and abuse. Um, but to to code that in these in this supernatural way supernatural metaphors and then to cop out and and resort to institutions it it just obliterates any positive potential of of those metaphors and and renders this like nothing but entertainment and useless on a like cultural level yeah yeah and i and i like I like that reading of it, right? Because that, but again, I I don't think that's a reading that the films themselves would endorse necessarily. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That's why I said at the beginning, the whole, the big question is like, how conscious is any of this? Yeah. And and I think 
that's when you get into some like really kind of interesting questions about the sort of subconscious of screenwriters and how these things are being written and presented in a very literal sense, but have this secondary kind of like, for lack of a better term, like real world kind of reading of them of what they could represent as depression or, or anxiety or whatever it may be. Um, and how like, it's almost like, the screenwriters, whatever the the whatever brothers, the Hayes brothers, is that right? Yeah, how yeah. they they sort of start from demonic possession and kind of kind of subconsciously work their way back backwards to oh, this could also mean depression at the sort of deterioration of your family or the pressures yeah. of motherhood or something like that. I'm I'm not even sure they get that far with it. I I think it's just that there is such a uh, such a link in the mind just going back for thousands and thousands of years of like the mythology of possession and the reality of depression I, I think that's just I think it's just linked in their minds and so when they write a movie about demon possession it's just uh, this is unconscious expression of of the true anxiety of depression yeah, I don't think they're like, oh, this is a good metaphor. Now, some like like I'm saying, Ari Aster with Hereditary is thinking that he he understands what the literal how the literal reading corresponds to the metaphorical reading and incorporates that those metaphors and just you know makes it part of the conscious narrative. Uh, and this movie is just mostly unconscious about about all of this. Yeah, and I, I didn't want to imply I did not want to imply that you know the Hayes brothers eventually realized what they had put you know on the screen or like oh okay yeah I, I just meant to say like it's funny to look at how we have to sort of read past what's on the screen to sort of get at what might be coming out of them kind of subconsciously or they sort of picked up on sort of cultural ideas of you know postpartum depression or or whatever it may be um, and then sort of it's run through all the bullshit in their heads and come out the other side as the conjuring, uh, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so I, I don't, and like you're saying, I don't think that they're necessarily cognizant of that, but yeah. it, it, it's, it's fun to think about kind of, uh, those sort of subconscious implications for stuff like that. Yeah. 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 I'm with you. Um, I just stumbled upon a uh, uh, audience review on the internet by John Rowe of the first Conjuring. Let me just read you a, a tidbit. Part horror, part lifetime original, and part evangelical PSA. I might be able to forgive the disjointed sappiness if every adult character weren't so unlikable and one-dimensional. The mood and pacing is all over the place. Between the suspense and thrills, which are mostly pretty good in themselves, the movie shoehorns in the most awkward, sentimental, and expositional scenes accompanied by music that sounds as if it were taken from a made-for-TV soundtrack. <laughs> awesome. Nailed it. Yeah. Like, it, that's... the All of the emotions in the film are... are well, portrayals of the emotions are so, like, weird and stilted and, like, don't line up with what actual people... Yeah, I, I, I said to Jensi watching this, I said, I don't know if I've ever seen 
a depiction of a relationship uh, that I hated more than Ed and Lorraine Warren. Yeah, but God, do they do they love fucking? Oh, they it's love that them some horniness, they, man. They love them some some marital sex. <laughs> well, apparently, I don't know if this is true. Jensi was like doing some research on uh, on the Warrens, and it was saying how Ed had a uh, a mistress who was like maybe a minor, and Lorraine was totally aware of it, and it was like they weren't as uh, conservative, uh, stand up, traditional Catholic as uh, as the movie portrays them. Yeah, that's that's pretty funny. So, whatever. Yeah, it's it, it, you know whatever, man. I don't I don't care about these movies. Fuck these movies. Um, yeah, but the, you know I'm, I guess I'm glad I watched them because they like we were talking about they're huge, hugely successful. People like them. Like, there's another one coming out next year. Um, yeah, allegedly. Yeah, if anything's coming out next year. Yeah, yeah. If if any movie is going to be released, boys. Um, I'm trying to think of like what. Oh yeah, um, I thought it was worth mentioning that in both films, it seems like the, it's important for the family to be in dire financial straits. Mm-hmm. Um, in the first one, you know, the dad's like a long haul trucker and they have like a million kids. Uh, I, I guess in both, in both films, it, that, that is also kind of like a Christian thing of like, you fuck all the time. Therefore you have a bunch of kids because that, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Um, yeah. so both families have all these kids within part of that is that that also makes them struggle financially. So in the first one, he's like, the dad's a trucker and the mom is just, he takes care of all their kids. Um, and then the second one, the dad's left and, you know, it's made very clear from the very beginning that they're poor. And the mother even says, you know, the little boy's like, where are the biscuits? And I got so fucking tired of the biscuit thing after a while. Um, and the mom's like, we don't have any money. <laughs> um, right. And, and again, that adds to the, to the whole psychological thing of like stress and anxiety and the, the, the real world fears that, that underpin the story. Yeah, because it's like after they banish the demons or whatever, they're still going to have those issues. Like those aren't going anywhere, right? Right. Um, so the true, the true evil, the scariest thing of all, living in poverty. Yeah. Uh, wh- one thing I did want to say before we forget is I, I, I didn't do the research, and I, I want to, but I want to know if the nun from the second one is like part of the Warren files, you know, like part of their book or something, or if that was just a pure invention for the movie, because that scene where the nun is like, has closed Lorraine into the office or whatever. And you see the shadow walking on the wall. Uh, I was just thinking about how, uh, what the Warrens do is basically like, making money off of lying through their affiliation with the church and like taking advantage of seems like poor people. Uh, you talking about the sort of socioeconomics made me think of this. Um, and so if, if the nun actually was like part of their story, obviously it's not a real thing, but if it were part of the story they were selling as true and were, an imaginative invention of Lorraine or Ed, it would make a lot of sense for this sort of evil 
shadow projection uh, concocted by Lorraine to be a nun. Uh, be, like like Lorraine's shadow is a nun because you know nuns are are known for like vows of poverty and helping you know underprivileged people. Uh, so it makes sense that you know uh, an evil nun would be the shadow of this sort of charlatan, uh, you know, snake oil peddler uh, who who gets wealthy off of you know by by associating with the church. Uh, so I'm like really curious where the nun came from. Yeah, I don't know, and, and you know that that's become a sort of spinoff franchise within the universe, um, and you know that they. they really bent over backwards to link all of these movies together. So when I was reading all the synopses, synopses of these, um, they're all, there's always like a reveal at the end of like, Ooh, that's how it's connected to that one. And it's all Mm -hmm. one big timeline that's jumping around. And I think that fact alone kind of draws people in a lot that, that sort of novel idea within a, a, any movie franchise, but then especially a horror movie franchise of sort of nonlinear stories that are connected through these sort of subplots and the, and items that are magical and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's cool. It's yeah. uh, the wor- world building is, is uh, no matter what genre you're working in. Very cool. Yeah. I think. And so <laughs> I can't really like fault that. Cause I, I, I do think that's, it's interesting to see someone do something like that with a new intellectual property. Right, because everyone's too busy tripping over their own dick to do it with Marvel and and Star Wars and all that, all the Disney properties. But then to come up with something new, even if it is something that's based on these, the sort of the Warrens mythology, uh, it you know that's it's admirable that it's something new and it's something that people responded to. Right, it almost yeah. it, it almost suggests that if you did more stuff like that, maybe people would like it too. Maybe we don't have to remake the same <laughs> shit every two years for the rest of forever. Right. There should be like, there should be like a, a regulation that like you can only make three, like you can make a sequel and then another sequel, you can make a trilogy and then that is all. <laughs> yes. You, you get three shots at it, three strikes in your head. Yeah. That's when, that's when, I mean, things get bad at sequels, but they get te- <clears throat> terrible after, you know, beyond a trilogy. And back in the day, it used to be you could just go like straight to DVD, and like maybe the, six the, people the would, skulls too. Yeah, and maybe like six or seven people would rent it on a weekend. Uh, but other than that, like no one cared. Maybe it would be behind like behind in behind enemy lines too, not starring Owen Wilson. There's a third behind it. Who it's like one of the screenwriters for one of these movies in the Conjuring universe was also the screenwriter for Behind Enemy Lines 3. Weird. Which is set in... Columbia? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> I only know that. I think it's because it's part of the title. Uh... Yeah, So, which is like... I'm. I, those movies have to be just American propaganda. Because uh, oh, yeah. the second one's called like The War on Terror or something. We should watch those. The first one kicks ass. Yeah, it's not bad. You know what? Uh, th- this is uh, neither here nor there, but it shows how dumb oh, I no, am. No, it's called it's called Axis of Evil. Oh, even better. Yeah, uh, but two thousand six. When I was younger, I think maybe because it came out around the same time, I used to always 
confuse behind enemy lines with enemy at the gates. Oh yeah. Which is that like World War II sniper movie. Yeah. With like was it like Jude Law or something? Uh I enemy I think it does have Jude Law. Is Bruce Willis in that? I used to get it confused with Hearts War. <laughs> Hearts War is definitely Bruce. Oh, and the I forgot. I think it's the same guy that wrote that that third Behind Enemy Lines movie is writing a Die Hard sequel that's just called like McLean or something. <laughs> uh, cool. Uh, Jency was telling her brother about her little brother who's like eight about the Die Hard, about the movie Die Hard. Uh, and he looked it up on the phone and was reading the. Uh, like the Wikipedia plot summary and he fucked up a little bit. He said, uh, super cop Bruce Wallace fights <laughs> super cop. Bruce Wallace fights tourists, <laughs> <laughs> which is sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. I would definitely uh, watch that. That'd be a great spinoff or, or parody movie. Chris Wallace super fights cop. tourists. <laughs> Oh man. No, speaking speaking of Jensen's little brother, Fletch, uh, I remember so we were talking about psychological uh, uh horror movies. Um we we watched something not too maybe last year, and we were talking about how houses in horror movies are representations of of the mind, and it's usually like basement is like uh unconscious id. And then the ground floor is ego and uh, uh, second levels or the attic is uh, super ego. It's like uh, Zizek talks about that with Psycho. And uh, uh, Jensi and I were sort of posing the question like why are houses haunted and not other places? Like why is the highway not haunted? Because because usually people's first answer is like, oh, well, like people died in the house before. It's like, oh, people die in car wrecks every day all the time. The highway is never haunted in movies. Uh, and and I think it has to do with the fact that, like like I was saying, the, the houses are usually um, representations of the human mind and the, the things trying to invade the house or get in the house are these like scary thoughts. Uh, anyway, Jensi asked her brother, Fletch, he was like seven or eight and said, why are houses haunted and not, you know, a field or the street? And his answer was, uh, because we've got to have something to run away from, <laughs> which is wise beyond his years. Right. Like made me think for, <laughs> for a while. Uh, I think that's a great answer to that question. Yeah, because uh, I mean, if you just I'm going to extrapolate on the idea of an eight year old for a second. If you <laughs> if you just take the um, idea of of like you're saying the house is sort of representative of like the human psyche or the structure of like the human mind, then the scariest thing, the thing that's so sort of terrifying for so many people about any kind of mental illness or mental stress or whatever is that it's within your mind, right? And that idea of Oh, it's all in your head. It's like, yeah, that's the issue. <laughs> like that—that's what—that's <laughs> right. what makes it so crippling. Um, so, in in that sense, you can't run away. And similar, if 
it's your home like where do you run to like what what's your option right right it's it's like that uh, episode of the that spooked podcast that you listen to uh you know the the farmer is like seeing this little girl on his farm and he thinks he's seeing this ghost and he's so insistent that like oh yeah she she can stay out there in the yard but this is my space this is you know this is my space this is That's my her space, space. Like, this is facebook dude, if, <laughs> yeah uh it's like dude if you think you saw a ghost i don't think you'd be worried like where the ghost was necessarily as much as you'd be worried about that the ghost is yeah uh, and and that's a clue that you know in that story the external boundary of like yard and house and garden that he's using are actually internal boundaries or constructs and and he doesn't want whatever that little girl represents in his mind to to be part of him to be conscious um and it's like painfully obvious if you listen to that i highly recommend anyone listening to listen to the episode Patroni um, of the uh, podcast Spooked and uh, and do a psychological reading. I've actually sort of uh, with my with my freshman writing classes I've made a sort of uh, assignment out of that um, but it's 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 very interesting to understand that story as like a as like a dream or a or a some sort of psychological experience as opposed to a fucking ghost story which is like i said it's kind of embarrassing that guy's like in his 50s yeah and the and the thing that we both pointed out is that for a large section of that story or when he's telling the story, he mentions that he had broken his neck. And Very was on casually mentions that he broke his neck. Yeah. And so he's alone in this house with just his dog on, I imagine, some pretty good painkillers. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I, uh, because I was doing, uh, doing it with a class, uh, I had to listen to that story like five times. And you pick up on new things every time you listen to it. Uh, the most interesting thing, I, uh, most recent thing I picked up on is that he, at the end of the story, he talks about how, uh, you know, his some paranormal investigator tells him that ghosts often manifest um, the, you know, the image that you see uh, as the time in the the ghost's life that it was the happiest, because he didn't understand why the little girl was a little girl while she was like nine or 10. Uh, but if you remember at the beginning of the story, he's, te- he starts off talking about being nine or 10. He uses the phrase nine or 10, um, and going to his grandparents' house and like watching TV and eating popcorn. And there's no reason for him to include that information in the story. Uh, in, anyway, there's all these weird little parallels. And like maybe that guy is totally fucking with us and I'm an idiot and I'm just like taking it way too literally. Uh, but it, he sounds pretty sincere. Yeah. No, I'd agree. He sounds anyway. like he's, he's not 
you know, he, he's a he's a man of the earth, salt of the earth yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, it's it, it's it's that part of that idea, the bigger idea that we've been talking about the whole time of thinking what supernatural occurrences, how they may be translated into sort of terms that align more with sort of the reality of what people may be going through in a, you know, their mental state that they may be in when these things occur. Um, because it seems like they're always go, they always sort of go hand in hand in the conjuring films. It's implied that they make you evil somehow, or like if you suffer some sort of trauma, then it sort of, you know, opens you up for, you know, bad things to happen to you. Um, yeah. Whereas, you know, in the real world, we know that's not quite the case. And oftentimes people have to try to do whatever they can to come to terms with these things or else they can become kind of all consuming. Um, so I don't know. It's interesting to think about because in that case, it's a, we have no idea what else is going on in that guy's life. Um, we know he broke his neck. We don't know what, what the deal is with that. And we sort of know that he's, he seems like kind of a lonely guy. Um, yeah. From, yeah, from and then the and then he like took the time to like call this podcast and tell this story. It's like so strange to me. Uh, yeah. It's it's uh, that goes back to what we're saying. It's kind of a defense mechanism. Uh, you know, as long as he, as long as that story remains a supernatural story, it will never. He will never have to confront the latent content. The actual sort of emotional uh issue at the core of that story whatever it may be yeah and it's just sort of within my and this is probably the case for most people but in my family there are like stories about like shit that happens uh and one of the things was that like apparently people of the older generation in my family would like see things you know, you probably have a lot of these stories in your family. And so one of them was my great aunt who, uh, was my grandmother's older sister who outlived my grandmother. My grandmother was like pretty unhealthy, had a lot of, uh, health issues, eventually died of, of cancer. And so my great aunt outlived her. Um, and <laughs> my great aunt, a few years after my grandmother died, was telling a story about how she lived, in this house kind of on a hill next to a lake. And there's like a road that runs next to the lake and goes like around the, the bend and disappears like, you know, off into the distance. It said one day she was looking out the window and saw my uh, grandmother uh, sort of as a younger version of herself walking down that road and went to go around the bend and stopped and like turned around and like waved at my great aunt and then went around the bend and disappeared. Right. And so, it's sort of like the end of no country, right? Uh, we have this, <laughs> yeah. this sort of thing of, and that and my great aunt would tell you that story with a straight face and be like, I, I saw that that happened. And it gets to the point where it's like, well, you know, it, shit, it probably did. Right. But at the same time, it's like, I'm not going to say you saw a ghost. I'm going to say that you're dealing with mortality, right? Like you, right. you sort of realize that, you know, you're in your eighties now, you're probably not going to be around a whole lot longer your sister who you've you know known your whole life and grew up with is gone. And so you feel like, Oh, now it's my time to sort of join her and, and be the next one to go. Um, but so, you know, people tell stories like that and whenever they're linked to family and stuff like that, you can almost always see kind of 
what the meaning is and people and it's sort of like what we're talking about the movie is they try to say it was i saw a ghost or whatever and then they interpret it as opposed to starting with the interpretation and think well maybe that's what imposed this you know vision upon me right and and it's a defense mechanism it's so they don't have to deal with the actual contents uh because that is painful uh to me the more much more uh traumatizing thing would be to see a ghost (laughs) you know uh regardless of its intent uh but it's uh ultimately i think it's about shielding yourself from you know that's why i think that's why dreams are metaphors you know like visual metaphors is because you you don't want to think those thoughts and it's like a way to sort of think those thoughts, uh, you know, sort of bubbling up from your unconscious. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking about, you know, how scary movies are almost always this sort of psychological process and, and ghost hunters, uh, or demonologists or whatever they are, the Warrens, are almost always that those types of characters are, are like sort of uh, psychotherapists in the psychological reading, the, the, the agent kind of facilitating healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you notice in the conjuring two, it's that it's that Zizek Freudian thing where it's like, he has to break in to the basement and then he like has to break in. Yeah. to the ground floor and then climb the stairs and she almost falls out the window, but then he brings her back in once they have the name for yeah. the demon. And they also and add in the sort of, of diagnosis. Like, they add in the sort of like blind, literal blind faith where he gets right. blinded right, by, right, right. by the steam. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it, it made me realize uh, it would be sort of interesting to take movies that are literally about mental illness or or the psychotherapeutic process and translate them into horror movies and i was just sitting here thinking about like a movie called goodwill ghost hunting uh (laughs) where like you know the the conceit of that movie is that he's this genius and so in a supernatural world genius would be conceived of as like maybe like foresight you know like he can see the future because there's that scene where he's like, you know, Robin Williams uh, criticizes him because he only anticipates every negative thing down the road. And so like you could uh, supernaturally literalize that where he's like, it's like the dead zone and he can like see the future. Uh, But then, but then, you know, Robin Williams character becomes this like, Ed or Lorraine Warren figure um, as the facilitator of his healing. And just like in Goodwill Hunting, uh, Robin Williams had had been abused, right? D- the same way Will Hunting has. And so that's what gives them the connection. They're from the same neighborhood. So obviously that character in this theoretical adaptation uh would have the same sort of gift or a similar sort of background. It would be, if you, if you took 30 minutes, it would not be hard to make Goodwill hunting a, a scary movie because that archetypal story of like the healing process 
the therapeutic process it is almost every scary movie or at least every sort of haunted house movie yeah so yeah it could easily the the it's kind of a fine line between which way does it lean right yeah um yeah so that's what so next episode we're going to uh live read for you our script of goodwill ghost hunting (laughs) oh goodness goodness gracious great balls of fire yeah uh yeah but for real though i guess i I guess we're kind of done like we yeah i've said my piece (laughs) um so next week we're going to do another couple of groundbreaking films that everyone loves. Also um, directed by James Wan. It might as well be at this point. You see, I don't know if you saw where he was making like two or three movies in a year. Yeah. Um, but we're going to be talking about uh, the Borat movies. Borat 1 and Borat 2. They both have long comedic subtitles that I don't remember. Subsequent movie film, I think is the, the shortened version of the second one. Yeah. Uh, and we'll talk about um kind of uh, what i'm kind of looking forward to is talking about the changes in the world between the first and the second film that make the second one the impact of the second one slightly different um yeah yeah you know along with a, a lot of other stuff it'll it'll be the election will have happened by then so yeah we'll see if we're if we're still standing at that point <laughs> yeah I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we're both, I think, uh, Borat super fans. So, spoiler alert, yeah, we're going to gush over it. Uh, we're going to gush over it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's it. Okay, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>